First Chronicles. I wonder how many of you read the the book. Would you raise your hand if you did? How many of you read the book in this last week? Or just uh, today, any time during this last week? Would you raise your hand again? I see about two or three tentatively stuck up like this. All right. Honest John now, did you read all, every word of the first nine chapters? <laughs> first Chronicles covers the same historical ground as Samuel and Kings, but from a quite different point of view. Dr. McGee says this book is the Acts of the Old Testament, but much as I give deference to his Texas-sized insight, I would have to differ with him on that. I think rather this book can be compared to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the four Gospels, you know that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call synoptical Gospels. They cover the same, uh, generally the same incidents, and oftentimes from the same general point of view. They're very parallel to each other. But the Gospel of John is something quite different. When John sat down to write his Gospel, he wrote it the last of the Gospels. He wrote it probably the last book written in the New Testament. And uh, it was not until about 90 or 95 A.D. that John wrote his Gospel. And he deliberately wrote it uh, employing a selective process. He says many things Jesus did that are not written in this book, but these are written for a particular purpose. And uh, that purpose was that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He makes no attempt to try to cover the whole of the Lord's ministry, but he has carefully selected certain things out of his ministry to illustrate the great point that he wants to make, that here is the one who fulfilled all the divine, all the divine predictions of the coming Messiah, the Christ, and furthermore, that he was the Son of the living God. And this is his purpose. Now, the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is uh, very similar. It covers uh, the same historical ground. Uh, these two books together, but uh, they empl it employs a selective process. And uh, the central points around which everything in these books gather is the king and the temple, those two. The king was David, and uh, these two books differ from the others in that everything centers on David. He's the only king, in a sense, that appears in these two books. He's God's king. Uh, the first book centers on him completely. The second book of Chronicles follows the house of David all down through to the time of the captivity and almost totally ignores the northern kingdom. For this is the book of the king, God's king, and the temple. And we'll see more of that as we come into this. It's clearly evident that the book of First Chronicles was written after the captivity, after the 70 years when the nation of Israel had been held captive in Babylon, and uh, certain references make that clear in the book. 
was probably written by Ezra, the priest, who also wrote the book that bears his name, Ezra, and uh, was uh, one of the great figures to come back with the captives to reestablish the temple and the worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem. And it's from that point of view, the emphasis upon the reestablishment of the worship of Jehovah, that this book is written as it's covering these historical events. Now this, this uh, selective character of this book is very evident right even in the opening chapters. The first nine chapters, as you've already discovered, is given over to a long list of names, genealogies. But these are not merely the stringing together of a lot of names. These genealogies are great, are of great importance. They're one of the most helpful areas for anybody attempting to study in the problem of biblical chronology. And if you are uh, working in any area like that in the Bible, you'll certainly spend a great deal of time in these opening chapters of uh, Chronicles. But there are far more than that. I know sometimes we're tempted to hurry by these names, these long list of Bible names. We feel so much like the dear old Scots preacher who was reading from the opening chapter of Matthew, and he started out reading, uh, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph and his brethren, and he said, and they kept on begetting one another all the way down this side of the page and clear on to the other side. And then he went on from there. And some of us would like to dismiss these genealogies uh, in a hurry. We will miss the point of this whole passage. For if you look carefully at this genealogy, as you read it through, you'll see that God is choosing, selecting, excluding, and including, working toward an ultimate goal. And the genealogy is, is uh, recorded for that very purpose that we might see the both the goal toward which the Lord works in human history and the process by which he includes or excludes, the principle upon which this inclusion is done. It begins with Adam, goes clear back to the dawn of human history, and uh, immediately lists the sons of Adam, Seth and Enosh, Kenan, Mahalaleel. These are the descendants of Adam. We get the sons of Adam as... Uh, Cain and Abel and Seth, but there's an immediate exclusion of Cain and Abel, no mention of them at all, and the whole focus is upon the descendants of Seth, because it's from the Sethites that eventually the family of Abraham and the Israelites came. There's this principle of exclusion, and then it traces the line of Seth down to Enoch, and then to Noah, and the three sons of Noah are given. Shem, Ham, and Japheth that we're so familiar with. And Ham and Japheth are dismissed with just a brief word, and the focus of attention is on Shem, the line of Shem. And from Shem, we trace it down to Abraham and his family. And there's a constant narrowing process, which excludes then the sons of Abraham, Ishmael, and the son of, of uh, Jacob, Esau, and focuses upon the twelve sons of Jacob who became the fathers of the tribes of Israel. And as the uh, genealogy goes on, it selects out the tribes of Judah and Levi, the tribe of the king and the tribe of the priest, the priestly line. Uh, 
And it traces the tribe of Judah down to David, and David to Solomon, and then to the lines of the kings in the house of David to the captivity. And the tribe of Levi is traced down to Aaron, the first of the priests, and then to the priests that were prominent in the kingdom at the time of David. In all this list of genealogies, there's one very choice incident that stands out. One of my favorite Bible stories is found in the fourth chapter, verse 9, where we read of Jabez. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And uh, his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez means pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me and enlarge my border, and that thy hand might be with me, and that thou might wouldst keep me from harm, so that it might not hurt me. And God granted what he asked. And that little incident is put right down there in the midst of a long string of names, before it and after it, as a, a kind of a spotlight on this individual Jabez. Now, there's always one principle that God follows in this process of selectivity. He includes men wherever he finds an obedient heart. And when he finds an obedient heart, all the native disability of that man is canceled out. And he is immediately made an effective, effectual instrument for the working of God in the program toward which he moves in human history. When he excludes, when he drops out a name, when he turns from a line or a family, it's always on the basis of the appearance of disobedience, disobedient heart. And he excludes regardless of rank or ancestry or privilege of any kind. Wherever there's an obedient heart, that heart is included in this list. And God begins a new line with him. Wherever disobedience occurs, that name is dropped out. And you can trace this principle all throughout this genealogy. Now, this sets the pattern for the rest of the book. In uh, chapter 10, we have a very brief chapter that completely uh, covers the life of King Saul, first of Israel's kings. Uh, one of the briefest chapters in the book only 14 verses, and with this, Saul is dismissed. He's disposed of quickly, and the reason is given in verse 13. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness. He was unfaithful to the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance, and did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord slew him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And beginning with chapter 11 through to the end of the book, the rest of the book is all about David. David, the king after God's own heart, the king with an obedient heart. And as we follow through the life of David, we'll notice that we, we note that the book traces the whole course of David from the moment he was anointed king. In other words, this is the book that emphasizes the king, God's king. And the first act of David after uh, his coming to the place of kingship in Israel is to take the stronghold of the Jebusites, the pagan stronghold, which later became under his rule the city of Jerusalem, God's city, 
the city of the great king, this, the, uh, the place where God had chosen to put his name in the tribes of Israel. And that's immediately followed in the book by a flashback to the exile of David and to the mighty men who gathered around him. And uh, these were men of faith and men of passion who were attracted to David by the character that he displayed. And again, one of my favorite Bible stories occurs in here in chapter 11, verse 22. This story concerning Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, who, among other things, slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And what a great lesson comes from that story. Some of you have heard me preach on that. I love to, uh, to, to preach on that story of Benaiah. These were some of the mighty men who gathered about David in his exile, and as they shared his exile, so they became the leaders in the kingdom. Now, all this, you'll notice already, I'm sure you've grasped, is a picture for us of the reign of the Lord Jesus in his coming to earth again. We are promised that we who share his sufferings shall also share his glory. That when he comes to rule over the earth and to establish his kingdom in righteousness here upon this very earth, so that the uh, righteousness of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And in the beautifully descriptive language of the prophets, men shall learn to make war no more, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And peace shall cover the earth. None shall hurt and destroy in all God's holy mountain. This is pictured for us by the magnificence, the glory, the majesty of the reign of David as with as he gathers his mighty men who shared his exile with him and brings them to the throne and they share his kingly power and glory. But the second act of David and the uh, emphasis of this book is his concern for the ark of God. And in chapter 13, we're told, uh, we, we have the story of how he, he went down to the Philistine city where the ark was being held captive and, uh, had, and, and took it upon a cart and tried to bring it back to Jerusalem. And uh, there is recorded again that unwitting departure on David's part from the principle of obedience. He knew that the law had commanded that the ark was to be carried only by the Levites. But in the exuberance of his joy and his, uh, his zeal for God's cause, he, uh, he thought God wouldn't mind if uh, the ark was carried in another way. And you remember what this resulted in. When Uzzah, walking along beside the ark, saw it, uh, it uh, shaking as it passed over a rough spot in the road and reached out to study the ark. Immediately when his hand touched the ark, he dropped dead. And David was tremendously upset by this. But as he thought it over and prayed about it and realized, he realized that it was all his own fault. That he had neglected the word of the Lord. And if there's any uh, incident from the Old Testament that teaches more clearly than anything else the importance of, of a careful, uh, precise obedience to what the word of God says, it's this incident. I think also it's a great incident to teach us that God is able to take care of his own cause 
I often see so many today who, like Uzzah, are trying to steady the ark of God as they think it's going to be brought down in defeat by some challenge that's issued against it. And they feel called to be self-appointed defenders of the faith, little realizing that God is quite able to defend his own cause. But as David learned his lesson, he returned to the principle of obedience, and he asked the Levites to arrange to bring up the ark according to the law, and the ark was brought up then to Jerusalem. Now, here is the most remarkable and a very significant thing in this book. The tabernacle, which had been the, the home of the ark through all the journeyings in the wilderness and the, the central place of the worship of Israel during the time of the judges and uh, the reign of Saul, was not located in Jerusalem. It was located in the city of Gibeon. And uh, it was to that tabernacle that one would think the ark would be returned. It was from the tabernacle it had been taken. It belonged in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. But when David brings the ark back, he does not bring it to the tabernacle. He brings it to the city of Jerusalem, the city of the king. And by his own authority, he sets up a center of worship on the very site where the temple was later to be built. And thus, he replaced the authority of the priest by the authority of the king. Now, we've all already seen that these Old Testament books are beautifully designed of the Holy Spirit to be a picture of the spiritual application to our own life, the warfare that we're engaged in, the battles, the kingdom over which we rule, the difficulties we encounter, and the spiritual principles by which victory is won. And this is a very significant thing here. The tabernacle, of course, was movable. It followed the people wherever they went through the wilderness journeys. And uh, it is a picture of God's grace that is ready to follow the believer in him despite the fact that he is wandering about, perhaps in a wilderness, sometimes in the, in the land, sometimes in the desert, sometimes up, sometimes down. God's grace still ready to follow ready to support and minister in the priestly ministry of confession and forgiveness of sin. And this is a beautiful picture of what goes on oftentimes in the early days of our Christian experience. We have what is called an up-and-down experience. Have you ever had that? Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. Sometimes we're defeated, sometimes we're walking in victory and, and glory. And uh, we, we, we go through inevitably, in every Christian's experience, this, this up-and-down experience. And during that time, we're so grateful for the, for the ministry, the priestly ministry, the, pre, the ministry of cleansing, of confession, of forgiveness. But at last, as we're led by the Spirit of God, we come to the place where we recognize the problem, the reason for our, our up-and-down, defeated... Uh, and then the victorious experience, this, uh, this uh, wave of up-and-down experience, is because we have refused to allow the Lord Jesus to exercise his kingly lordship in our life. And when we are led by the Spirit to the place where we at last 
our, our stubborn will is broken. We give up uh, once and for all our insistence, our stubborn insistence on running our own affairs. We recognize that this is a principle by which we must live. Now, we may not always follow it faithfully even from then on, but at last we accept it as a, as a principle that must be readily recognized as having uh, rule and reign in our life. Jesus Christ as Lord of our life. We no longer have a right to ourselves. In the words of this song, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. No longer yours. No lo- your life is not any longer yours to plan, to program, to uh, work out in advance. You belong to the Lord, and he becomes king in your life. And at that very moment is fulfilled what is pictured here, that when the king comes, the ark is fixed in the temple, and it's immovable from then on. All the blessing of God flows then from a heart in full submission to the Lordship of Christ. And the result is that the temple is a new beginning, in a sense, in our life. It's no longer a continuation of the tabernacle, though much of the temple is like the tabernacle in its plan and design. Yet, as David made the furniture for it and so on, he made it in in many ways different than the furniture that was in the tabernacle. This is a new beginning, a total change of government. And the result is a total change of behavior. For beginning in chapter 18, where you have the ark brought back and placed at the site of the temple, you have an immediate record of the conquest of David over all his enemies throughout the whole of the kingdom of Judah. 18, 19, 20, those three chapters are devoted to the victories of King David as as a beautiful pattern, a beautiful picture of what happens in the heart where Christ is crowned as king. Now in chapter 21, you get the only dark picture in the book. One interlude is brought before us of David's sin in numbering the people of Israel. It's a remarkable thing in Chronicles that the sin of David, the double sin of murder and adultery, when he took the wife of Uriah the Hittite and uh, uh, entered into an adulterous relationship with her and in order to consummate it had to murder her husband by sending him out to battle, putting him in the forefront of the battle. That sin is passed over in total Uh, silence here in the book of Chronicles, because that was David's personal sin as a man. It had nothing to do with his relationship as a king. It was his own weakness, his own folly, his own foolish willfulness, just as an individual. But as king, it had nothing to do uh, with his reign. But this sin, the sin of numbering Israel, is a is an abrupt departure from the principle of dependence on the strength and the glory of God. Why did he number the people? Because he wanted to he wanted to uh, uh, glory gloat in the number of people that were available to him. He wanted to see his strength, and this is always the problem in any Christian circle when men begin to count upon numbers. One of the great principles that runs right through the Bible from beginning to end 
is that God never wins his battles by majority vote. Never. He never wins his battles by numbers. And when we think that the cause of Christ is lost because the number of Christians is decreasing in proportion to the population of the world, we have succumbed to the false philosophy that God wins his battles by numbers. He doesn't. He doesn't. It's by quality. How many times that's taught to us in the word of God. Gideon is told to send out through all the armies of Israel and to bring in all the men, and 32,000 men uh, respond to his call. And when he looks out at them, he says, that's a good number. I think we ought to be able to do with something with that. And God says, I'm sorry, David, there's far too many. I can't work with that many. So David or Gideon sends out the word to send those home that have just recently been married and the ones who are uh, afraid, because neither one of them are any good. And 22,000 of them went home. They'd had a heavy wedding. That must have been in the month of June or July, perhaps, in Israel. 22,000 of them went home. And David said, well, Lord, or Gideon said, Lord, you've whittled me down to 10,000 men. But I guess that's enough. And God said, no, Gideon, it's still too many. And he put them to the test until it was whittled down to 300 men. And with 300 men, God delivered the nation. How many times were taught this? The whole armies of Israel stood in glum, uh, morose despair before the tauntings and the and the struttings of Goliath as he paraded up and down before the camp, mocking the soldiers of Israel, holding the whole camp in gloom. But one little shepherd boy came with a sling, and with a, with a single rock from the brook, God delivered the people. And with the, the jaw of an ass in the hands of Samson, he killed the Philistines. And all through the book, it's this same principle repeated again and again, God's method is quality, never quantity. Never. That's what we have here in the life of David. As a result of his departure from this principle, and because he was the king and the whole nation looked to him as an example, as the means by which they, they learned the principles and the ways of God, God's judgment was exceedingly severe upon David for this. You remember? The prophet was sent to him and said to him, I'll give you three choices. God has said, you can have three choices. Either you have three years of famine or three months where your enemies overcome you and run rife through the land or three days of a plague and pestilence. And David did the wise thing. He said, who am I to determine anything like this? I'll simply cast myself into the hands of the Lord God is a God of great mercy. Let him do what he thinks is best. And the angel of the Lord came in the midst of the people, and for three days he slew with pestilence throughout the nation. And at last it was stayed as David saw the angel with his sword stretched out over the city of Jerusalem, ready to slay there. And David pled with God and said, It's my fault. Why do you, uh, why do you take vengeance upon these others? I'm the one to blame. God instructed him to buy the, uh, the cattle of Aruna and uh, the threshing floor there. And on that place, he erected an altar and 
worship before God. And that was the site then upon which the temple was later built. And the altar was placed on that place where the angel of God stayed his hand of judgment. And that was the place of the temple. So that even the grace of God, you see, comes in in the time of, of disobedience and turns the, the, uh, the willful punishment that fell upon David, or, or rather the willful judgment that fell upon David into, a, into grace and blessing. The rest of the book then, from chapter 22 on, is the account of David's passion for the building of the temple. How he longed to see this temple built. This was his heart, because he understood that a nation without a temple can never be a nation. That if there is not a people without God in their midst, they will never amount to anything. And David, taught of God, entered into the great principles of human life, and his passion was to build a temple for God, a new beginning in the nation. But because he was a man of war, and therefore could not fulfill the type that God had in mind, of the reign of Christ, when he would rule over the nations of the earth, not as a man of war, but as a man of peace. God said to David, no, it's your son. Your son will be raised up. He will be a man of peace, and he shall build the temple. And David has learned so the heart, the principle of obedience, that he says, yes, Lord, if that's what you want, as much as it's a disappointment to me, I'll accept that. But God, in grace, allowed David to actually do everything about the temple but build it. He drew the plans. He designed the furniture. He collected the materials. He made the arrangements. He set up the order. He set up the ritual. He brought down the cedar poles from, the, from Mount Hermon and Mount Lebanon in the north. He dug up the rock and quarried the, the rock and he gathered in the gold and the silver and the iron and gathered it all together. And then the book closes with Solomon anointed, reigning side by side with David as a picture of the fact that it takes these two men to picture the one ministry of the Lord Jesus. He is both the mighty warrior of David and the man of, print, uh, the man of peace of Solomon. And the book closes then with Solomon upon the throne and the temple about to be constructed. And in Second Chronicles, that's the first thing, event that seizes our attention. Now, what's the message then of this book? Well, in one word, it's the importance in any life of a temple. The temple is the supreme thing. The relationship of God in your life. Over the cathedral in Milan, over the doors of the cathedral in Milan, Italy, the three great entrances to that cathedral. On the right-hand door is written, is, is, is carved a wreath of flowers. And over it is written, all that pleases is but for a moment. On the left-hand door is a cross. And all over it is written, all that troubles is but for a moment. And over the main entrance is simply written the words, nothing is important save that which is eternal. And all of it gathering up the very lesson of the book of Chronicles, as it is the lesson of the whole of the Bible. Whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of, by the authority and the ability of, the Lord Jesus, King in his temple. Shall we bow in prayer?
Our Father, may the lesson of this Old Testament book be written deeply in our hearts. May we recognize that the marvel of this book is that it conveys in human language and through human institutions the revelation of thy workings in, in history and in lives and in our lives. May we, like David, be a king after thine own heart, ready to walk in obedience to the clearest, the simplest, the, uh, the, the very word of Scripture itself, that we may demonstrate, as he demonstrated, the glory of a kingdom over which Jesus Christ is king. In his name we pray. Amen.